Is there any gain in our toil? Is there meaning to life? The preacher's meditations in Ecclesiastes call us to consider life under the sun, existence without a loving, benevolent God over it all. Along the way, this wisdom book calls the weary and the skeptical to deal with the inevitability of death, and in so doing, discover how to truly live. You're listening to a podcast of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. We exist to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people whole in Him. Good morning. All right, let's turn to Ecclesiastes 3 together. Almost right in the middle of your Bible. Turn that way, Ecclesiastes 3. Before I get going, I want to encourage you with something I've already said a couple times. I want to encourage you to this week, set aside 30 to 45 minutes on a day that's undistracted, that you can sit down and read the entire book of Ecclesiastes. What you're going to get today, hopefully, is a good section of explanation and and growing towards right understanding of, of Ecclesiastes, but it still is only a part. So I want to encourage you to sit down and actually read the entire book of Ecclesiastes. Again, I've done it a couple times now where I've had timed myself. Each time is between 30 and 40 minutes. It's well worth your time. It helps you center yourself and see these things connected, but also it promises to be grace to you. So again, I'll call you as brothers and sisters. Put aside time this week. Read the entire book of Ecclesiastes. All right, let's look at Ecclesiastes 3. Our text today will be verse 16 all the way through verse 3 of chapter 4. Let's read Ecclesiastes 3.16 through 4.3. This is God's word. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man What happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down to the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in all his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. From the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. Better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we ask for grace. We ask that we'd respond with joy, repentance, and trusting you as you open your word to us. May we respond with thanksgiving as you have fed us already with yourself and your word this morning. I pray that we together would worship through the proclamation of Jesus Christ through Ecclesiastes. We give you honor and praise and ask, Lord, that you'd make us more like Jesus. I pray that you'd call sinners to yourself. I pray for the Riyal Malayu people, that as our missionary friends go and proclaim Christ over and over again, 
that, Lord, you'd break down stony hearts and they would trust Jesus Christ and that you would start the church in the Riyal Malayu. I pray for those in our own city who do not know Christ. If they're to be here or bump into one another here in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our schools, in our workplaces, I pray that we would proclaim Jesus. Lord, help us not to waste our lives doing piddly things, but rather, Lord, may we live in light of the gracious mercy of our God who calls all men to be joyful in him. We rejoice in you this morning and ask that you would speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In my short life, um, I've learned that different people have different perspectives about the things that happen in life. For instance, in my own household, uh, my wife and I have very different takes on the things that go on. Um, she would look at me and say, you're just an optimist. And of course, I would look at her and say, you're just a pessimist. But then, of course, she would correct me and say, no, you're the optimist and I'm the realist. Yeah, yeah I know. I see a couple little grins around, like everyone uses that. You know, you're like, I'm just letting everyone know if you're on the other side of the equation, there's no winning this conversation. All right? There's, there's no proving it. I just want to recognize that we all understand that there's different ways of looking at life. Uh, growing up as a child in a Christian home, um, I used to listen to these tapes. Uh, there are these Christian stories that had Christian music in them by a guy named Patch the Pirate. Um, some of you may be familiar with this, some maybe not. Um, but our kids just recently received some of these CDs from my parents and Kristen's parents, and they've been listening to them in the car and you know, in the bedrooms once in a while I overhear them, all in their 1984 glory. Uh, and it struck me that some of these songs are very biblical and good and encouraging and point to Christ. And then other ones are just like fun or maybe optimistic songs. Um, they have a certain way of thinking about life. Uh, for instance, here are the lyrics to one of the songs on Patch the Pirate Goes to the Jungle. It's called, Keep Your Sunny Side Up. Here's the whole lyrics, ready? Keep your sunny side up, up, up. Don't let your face get long. Keep your sunny side up, up, up when things are going wrong. Get rid of, here's my favorite line, get rid of that hard-boiled face and crack a smile in its place. Keep your sunny side up, not down. Keep your sunny side up, don't frown. I mean, those are some genius lyrics, right? That's pretty good. Um, and for those of us who don't know anything about Bats the Pirate, that's kind of funny, but um, maybe you're more familiar with or could relate to uh, Kirk Franklin's positive hit, I Smile. You know, maybe some of you listen to gospel music. We can talk about that later on. But um, here, here's some of the, uh, the thoughts that he says. This is some of the lyrics. He says, I smile, even though I hurt. See, I smile. I know God is working, so I smile. Even though I've been here for a while, I smile, smile. It's hard to look up when you have been down. Sure would hate to see you give up now. You look so much better when you smile. So, smile. Now, I'm not promoting either of these songs here today, necessarily. Um, I'm just bringing it up here that even in our own Christian subcultures, there's this strong need and love for positivity right? Like the life is good and we can, we can make it, we can, we can smile, or we can just keep our sunny side up. I mean, you've got entire Christian, you know, uh, music stations that their tagline is positive and encouraging. And again, that's, that's, a, that's a good thing in certain places and we're, we're thankful for that. I'm simply just trying to show that in our culture, there are times that we don't know what to do exactly 
And so we say, well, we should be positive. We should just have a good outlook on this. Everything is going to be okay. But for those of us who have been around the block or have maybe a more realistic understanding of the world, we recognize that we can't have it all and just be positive and just smile and everything's going to be fine. We recognize that even if we try to keep the sunny side up, real life is happening and it's awful. Um, we see this and understand that things are tough in the midst of a broken world, one that's full of sin. We understand when we're facing death that everything isn't sunny side up. Everything isn't smiles. Today our author is going to commiserate with all of us, those that have experienced evil, death, and oppression. And up to this point, we've felt that the, the cycles and all the toil that we've seen, so many different pursuits have left us empty in this place under the sun. When the question is asked, what gain has the worker for his toil, he's made it really, really clear. Nothing. You don't get anything. Look at all the cycles that continue on and on and on. Look at all the times that, that happen in our lives. What comes out of it? It seems as though it's all hevel, pointless, empty, mere breath. You can't gain anything from your work under the sun. And as we work through this text... And if we're honest with ourselves about how bad life can really be, we are going to conclude not only that life is pointless, we'll go a step further, but that it's evil. As we look here, we're going to see that many problems that are around us, some that we've experienced personally, some we've just seen from afar, all of them seem to make us want to cry out, foul, this can't be so, evil, wrong, immoral. It seems as though justice doesn't stand, almost as though evil abounds in the world. How can people commit real crimes under the sun and never receive their due penalty? We know this happens. How can people be wronged, great injustices, and never receive justice for what has happened to them? What about the, the problem of mortality? Not morality, mortality. I'm talking about human death. This is, this is a big problem here. It's super disturbing for those of us who want to try to live according to some type of enduring meaning, as though there's an answer to all of this. All of our experiences end in death. And what about those who get taken advantage of? Uh, you know what I'm talking about. Those that don't have the funds or the abilities or the family or whatever it is to defend themselves in a sinful world that continues to oppress them. We're talking about those who are truly oppressed. When each of us looks at this kind of a world, the world that's around us, we end up rightly frustrated, almost angry, throwing up our hands saying, what is the point here? We end up wondering if any of this really matters. And we wonder if we'd be better off just living for ourselves in this dark and unforgiving world. In today's text, we hear our author admit that the way that we feel about oppression, injustice, and death are warranted. They're real. They're real problems that happen in real life under the sun. And in today's text, we hear our author do this. And I want you to remember that the book of Ecclesiastes is not only for Christians. This is going to be really important because it's going to kind of shade the way that we see what he's actually doing here. 
The book of Ecclesiastes is also for non-Christians who are honest with the real questions of meaning in life. It's trying to make sense of their experience in the world by philosophy and wisdom at whatever cost. We really want to figure out what this life is about. If you remember back in my introduction sermon, we actually talked about this. I made the claim that Kohelet, the, the author, the assembler here, he's not an unbelieving skeptic, as a few scholars would think, but rather a God-fearing apologist. What I mean is a man of wisdom who seeks to be realistic with all of humanity. I think it's even right to go a little bit further than that and say that the book of Ecclesiastes is one of the most academic and realistic missionary works in the Bible, meant to be a evangel, an evangel, one that actually proclaims that the answer really is God. The author's not afraid to ask questions that we almost dare to ask. He's not afraid to go down paths that are difficult and leave us cold. Today, we're going to see that this text is not a feel-good passage. It's brutal and cold, like I said, but it does contain rays of light. It contains principle that points back to the comforting truths we've seen already, and more importantly, it's going to point forward to the main purpose of Ecclesiastes. Today, we're just going to look at three bothersome issues that cause us to struggle with our experience of living here in the world. A world that claims to do right and try to end up doing the good things around us. But in the end, it seems as though it's pointless or that maybe the world is even wrong. Along with these difficulties, we will also see, though, one foundational principle that will get us through. And then also, he is going to offer us a way to live. Tell us what we should do about this. So we look this together. Let's go ahead and start by looking at verse 16. He says this, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Now, I'm not sure if you have personally experienced something like this. There's a few of you I know who have. Some type of complete injustice where wickedness was done against you. And in the place where there ought to be righteousness or justice, there was none. And so we have an answer that seems to be, even in these places, there is wickedness. Kohelet here is remarking on the fact that in this world, and remember he's talking about those things that are under the sun, in this world, a world that does not have the all-seeing eye of God, a world that does not have the all-powerful reach of God, and unfortunately in a world where everyone does not even acknowledge God, in this world, right judgments are not universal. They don't always happen. We try. We do our best to kind of render good judgments and get justice taken care of and do what would be right. But over and over and over again, we watch in the places where it's supposed to be righteousness and justice, wickedness rears its ugly head. Um, Right judgments can be and often are thwarted in this world. And in its place, we're left with, therefore, wicked judgments, ones that aren't right and true. He brings us really to the court system is what he's doing here, and and maybe even the temple as he talks about this. Both are to be places of justice and righteousness. This is a place where the law should be upheld and where sin and wickedness should be penalized. This is a place that's supposed to stand for justice and moral good. You guys know this. When you think about a people who has established themselves and they make for themselves a government, their goal is not to fail, but rather to succeed. 
And as they set up a government, they realize that they need some type of justice. Because if they don't, the society will quickly degrade into some form of tyranny. And it's most likely going to be a tyranny of the strong. Those are the ones that win at the end of the day, doing what they want to. Our author looks at these bastions of moral uprightness, the courts and the temples, and he finds them to be less than perfect. Instead, here in the place of justice, we find wickedness. Now, we know this isn't new, right? We've read the Bible before. We understand this is true. The prophet Isaiah talks about it in Isaiah 5, verse 20 and 23. Let me read it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who, part, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Verse 23, who acquit the guilty with a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. We know this is bad. We know that it's not right. It doesn't fit properly. Something is terribly wrong with a society that allows wickedness in these places where justice and righteousness is supposed to be. We know that those who practice such wickedness are actually condemned throughout the scriptures. And thus we look around and we're depressed by the state that's around us. Now let me make a quick side here. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't fight for righteousness and truth and justice. As you go along, we'll realize we, who've been made in the image of Christ, are to be like Christ to the world. But as we look at what's going on around us, we recognize that this is how it is in a fallen world. We look around and find our earthly mechanisms for justice to be failures. They don't deliver on what they're supposed to do. And so we cry, Hevel, it's all pointless. It doesn't matter. It doesn't do what it's supposed to do. This seems wrong. As Kohelet considers these things, as he is bothered to the core, he can't help but take a moment and speak the truth to himself. Very much what Halim was talking about in the sense of counseling his own heart with the truth of good theology. And so what he says here is actually going to tie back to 311, and then it's going to propel us all the way forward to the end of the book at the end of chapter 12. Listen to verse 17. He said, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. He, he kind of counsels himself on what we touched on last week, a time for this, a time for that. There's, something, there's a time for everything. Although wicked men who do not honor God will triumph in wickedness here on earth, that does happen. We're saddened by it. It will only be a matter of time until God, the righteous judge, makes all things right. You know this because of God's character, right? Deuteronomy 32, 4. Uh, the rock, not speaking of God, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Not only do we know this from his character, but he actually speaks to the prophet Amos in Amos 5.24 and tells us this, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. He will do this. We need to be clear here. He doesn't tell us when it's going to happen. He doesn't tell us exactly what it's going to look like. He doesn't tell us whether it's eternal or something right now that's going to happen. His whole point here is that God is the one who will take care of justice, not me and you. And we can trust that God. He's simply making sure that we remember the truth, that God is the judge. There will be a time 
when he balances the scales of men. Notice that we are are seeing a phrase that actually ties us into the beginning of chapter 3. He says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. This is exactly what he said in chapter 3, verse 1, if you remember. Remember how immovable and sure was the design and plan of God that we saw last week? Remember that that whatever God does endures forever. I'm just quoting him now. That nothing can be added to it or nothing taken away from it. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. So with this sureness, we stand trusting God the judge that he will judge the righteous and the wicked. It's almost kind of a sense like this. We could add another line to the poem in chapter 3, 1 through 8. You could kind of say, a time to commit crimes, a time to get justice. It will happen. Whether we see it or not, God will be faithful to judge both the righteous and the wicked. And this then settles the author's heart as he continues on, knowing that God is sovereign. Verse 18, if you look here, is really interesting. He's already on the subject of God's divine intervention. He's talking about like the God will judge. And although you and I might not see it with our own eyes, we know he will do this. We might not even see it here in our earthly lives, but we know that he will. And so while we're talking about God's intervention, his sovereign actions over all creation, he enters this this little statement and shows that God works beneath the surface of our understanding in another important area. He says, look at verse 18, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man, what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for, their, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward, the spirit of beasts goes down to the earth. Now, Don't jump to a conclusion when you get to verse 21. Don't take it apart from everything else. Make sure that we take this as part of a unit. Our author isn't questioning whether there is a moral and eternal difference between humanity and animals. That's not what he's doing here. He's bringing animals and people together to show that they're both creatures who die, who have breath, and then they don't have breath, who are made of dust, and then they go back to dust. Verse 18 points out that this wise man, Kohelet, understands that God reveals to people this other disturbing reality, the reality of human mortality, death. He he says this in a kind of a strange way. He says that God is testing them that they may see. That doesn't make a lot of sense right away, but another another word to explain this is it would be properly translated proving or manifesting. But the idea is very clear here. God is working to show man that he is mortal just like the animals. Now, in what way are they like the animals? Well, he tells us in verse 19. What happens to the children of man, what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. So from our limited perspective, the perspective under the sun, right, we can see that we are both creatures, and God makes it aware to us that we're both made from dust, given breath in our lungs, that we eat, that we live, but that eventually we expire. All is vanity. With proper biblical revelation, so special revelation, the Bible, the word that he has spoken to his people, 
we, are, uh, we actually have more information to understand who we really are and the distinction between an animal and a person. But without that proper biblical revelation, we're left to wonder what in the world happens to the, the spirit of the animal and the spirit of the person. This, of course, shouldn't cast doubt on the rest of what the Bible so clearly tells us about our personhood, that we are stamped with the image of God, that those now, we know several passages that point us that our souls are not just expired with, along with our bodies that are made of dust. God has revealed to humanity that we are mortal beings just like the beasts. But without this special revelation, we're left to wonder about this great evil. Mortality, death. Why is it that we can build immense towers, that we can make houses, that we can make beautiful art, that we can design incredible structures, that we can make delicious food? And we look at the animals, they're not doing that stuff. They're not in the same way like us. And so, and so when we get to end, we're like, they expire and die, and we expire and die. What's, what's the difference here? Well, it seems for, for beings that want meaning, that want eternal significance, it just seems pointless. In fact, it seems wrong. The disturbing reality is that we don't live forever from what we understand. We die just like the cattle, or the birds, or the deer, or the fish. I mean, what good is it to live like this? This seems pointless. It's obvious to us that we are made of different stuff, and yet we still die like the dog dies. This leads to a short conclusion that summarizes what we have already heard a few times in the book of Ecclesiastes and what we'll hear coming up to the point too. Verse 22, he says this, So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot, who can bring him to see what will be after him. Now we've seen this formula already. If you remember back in 2, 24 and 25 and 3, 12 and 13, we saw this, like, this idea of like there's nothing better to do than this. In verse 24 and 25, he says, There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Now listen to 3, 12, and 13. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. This is God's gift to man. I want to point out something that, uh, man, I have found so helpful as I work through this. I didn't realize it up to now in my study, but I think it will be helpful as we kind of work through this verse. When he says that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, he is not talking about our employment. And, and we all kind of get that, maybe kind of, but we're thinking about like, well, the work that we do, the stuff that like mentally, physically, we, we produce goods and services and like that's how we think of work. When he uses this word in Ecclesiastes, he isn't just talking about a particular slice of our life that we would call work, the physical or mental, mental labor that would produce goods and services. No, he's talking about everything that we do. He's talking about something bigger than this. Uh, I went back through all of Ecclesiastes. Every time this Hebrew word is used, it's not only talking about toil or work like we think about it alone. It's talking about everything that we do or make. Oftentimes we see it throughout the Old Testament refer to, in a sense, the way that we talk about all activities, everything that we do in our lives, both sacred and secular. So 
With this understanding, when he says work, that it's more than just like employment or working with our hands or minds to produce things. Think about it as all of what we do that has been allotted to us in our life. And now let me read verse 22 again. So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for this is his lot, who can bring him to see what will be after him. This verse is, is encased with the understanding at the end there that we don't know the future and that we cannot see like God does from the beginning to end in verse, if you remember back in 3.11, he talks about this. He put eternity in our hearts. And yet we can't see from the beginning to the end. What we do know for sure is that God is sovereign over all. We have been given a set number of years on earth, just like beasts. And we are to work, to do to do what all he has called us to do in every activity, to rejoice in these activities. He's given us these years not to mope around or to worry about how in the world we're going to do anything or, or to live for ourselves alone. No, no, no. He's called us to rejoice in these activities, our work, our doing. And yes, the world we'll live, that we live in is evil. Yes, our days are numbered. And so what we should do is, as he calls us here, Rejoice in whatever it is that God has given us to do in our short lives. So perhaps you are a young, able-bodied, um, fully aware and well-thinking person. You've been given a lot of useful gifts. We know from the rest of Scripture that we are going to be uh, called on that stewardship. And so what should we do? We should rejoice and do good with what he has given us. Maybe you're handicapped, physically handicapped, or perhaps even mentally handicapped. And it seems as though you have a lot fewer gifts. What should you do? Nothing? Same thing. Rejoice and do good with what he has given you. So I'll just encourage us. You may not have the same gifts as other people in this church. I, I guarantee you don't. That doesn't mean that you have not been given all that God has intended for you to have to live faithfully before him. Rejoice and do good. Perhaps all of us, we look around and we see that everything is wickedness. And maybe some of you have even received awful things in your lifetime. What are you to do? Same thing. Rejoice and do good with what God has given you. I want to make it clear that this is not like some keep your sunny side up, just smile, just get out there and make sure you're always positive. No, no, no. no. This is not a happy-go-lucky Life is good, oblivious to every kind of evil perspective. No, this is rather one that is full of joy, different word. One that actually has its grounding in God himself. Joy is founded, in a sense, on the immovable rock, our God. Joy trusts the one who is outside our time and space, that he knows what he is doing. And if he's the only one that's over all, I better fear him and him alone. Um, think for a moment about giving this kind of advice to an unbeliever, someone who does not care about Christ, someone who's not a Christian. Um, I mean, it's fine advice. Go rejoice in your work. You know, just all that you do, rejoice in that. I mean, it's kind of okay advice, but it's a little lackluster if the truth of the matter is that you have no eternal joy. You don't know what happens after you die. You don't know what happens before you die. You're not sure why you're here. All you get told is life is good, live for you know, rejoicing in, in whatever work you have to do. Man, it just seems a little bit empty, right? Almost as though it's pointless. I don't think that I would like this answer, 
it's pretty hopeless since I have to eventually stare death down. But Kohelet is not an unbeliever. He is not prescribing a just smile perspective. He is calling us to true joy that is found in God alone, on the immovable rock, the one who existed forever and will exist forever. But even now, he isn't finished yet. We are only at the end of chapter 3. We've got a lot of things to, to kind of walk through that are really perplexing as we continue on in the book of Ecclesiastes. But let's just go to the next three verses here in chapter 4. It allows us to sit with those who have experienced evil in a very personal way. I mean, we've heard about wickedness in the courtroom, right? We know that death is coming, right? But let's sit with someone who lives a life of disappointment, pain, and injustice. Listen to these first three verses. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead were already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both, of, both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Whoa! I mean, this got dark quick, right? Better just not have any life whatsoever. I'm not sure that many of us have experienced maybe true oppression in the ways that we see so often. I'm talking about someone who is harmed simply because someone else is stronger than them and they can have their way or will over another person. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about oppression, getting what I want because I'm bigger, stronger, more influential, have more resources. I can do what I want and oppress another person. We know that this comes in all shapes and sizes. This could be physical oppression, social oppression, economic oppression, sexual oppression. And no, I'm not talking just about the fact that if you're different in some of these ways, that you're automatically oppressed. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about when someone is taken force and put it against someone else because they can. He says, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. There was no one to comfort them. I mean, this stuff is happening now. This does happen in our city, across the world. There are certain people who stand up for the oppressed, don't get me wrong. And we, by the way, ought to. We ought to stand up for those who are afflicted, oppressed, and not treated with justice. And we can do these things by God's grace. But even after all of that, we must recognize that because humanity is sinful, we cannot push back against every bit of oppression. We ought to continue to try. We ought to love people. We ought to push in this way. But what Kohelet is bringing out is the fact that there is oppression as long as there is sin. What are we to do with this? He even gets more serious about how bad it is in verse 2 and 3. He says, look at this, And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has, been, has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. This is how bad things are. The living people, they have it the worst. Better to be a dead person than a live person that's experiencing this evil. But in the tradition of making his point clear on a philosophical level too, Kohelet says that the best is the one who has never been at all. The one who has never seen the evil deeds under the sun. Now I want to make a, a, a very clear statement here. Let's make sure that we realize this is not promoting abortion. 
as though somehow it's better if the person never sees anything that's under the sun. That is not what he's saying at all. I mean, we, if we take that logic alone, then the people who are still alive, let's kill them because then they'd be dead, and then they wouldn't have to worry about the injustice and the oppression and all the stuff. No, no, no. Do you realize that whether we are alive out of the womb or alive in the womb and we are killed, that oppression has happened? Do you realize that the wickedness and evil that's done would then be done again? He's saying those who are, even before this, those who haven't been at all. His point is not to talk about seeking death here. That's not really what he's talking about. But rather to help us understand just how grievous and harsh the world is that we live in. What we see around us, one that is filled with evil and oppression. And so as we get to this point, we actually tie it up. We kind of come and we've seen that this is how it ends, how we began. We end with the admission that we live in a world where evil deeds are done and we do not have control over them. It's a cruel world. It's one that is not kind. In fact, it's a harsh and grievous world to others. It's a world where everyone dies. It's a world that cannot make right judgments and provides very little comfort for those who are truly oppressed. So my question is, what are we to do with this passage? If you are still here seeking truth, but do you, not, you do not care about religion necessarily, or maybe you're listening somewhere, you hear this sometime, you stumbled in with a friend maybe, I would just ask you to consider wickedness, death, and oppression. How in your worldview do you handle those things? What do you do with death? What do you do with oppression? What do you do with injustice? I mean, go ahead and try to make sense of it in your worldview. It's terrible. And it seems to be pervasive over the whole earth. I mean, how can you and I in, in the whole world try to provide justice and comfort in life for all the people across the world that are suffering from evil? The answer is, if we're honest, we can't. We can't provide justice for all. We should try, but we, we recognize our limitations. I mean, our nation even is founded on the principles attempting to do our best to provide liberty and justice for all, right? And yet, we know that our courts cannot deliver on this promise. We try, but we're unable. Do you really want to then continue trying to do our best through politics and through random people trying to do good as much as they can? Is this the best that we've got? Is this the answer to all this pain and sorrow? Please just allow me then, instead, to give you a better way. When I say the better way, I mean the best way. When I say the best way, I mean the way that we were created to act. We're comforted in this passage with the fact that God will judge the righteous and the wicked. I mean, this theological foundation is absolutely necessary if we are ever able to rejoice in the work that he's given us to do under the sun. But let me encourage you that this isn't the final answer. We are not left with promises only. We are left instead with a sure and steady anchor for our souls in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I mean, think about this. How do we solve the problem of wickedness? where there should be justice and righteousness? How do we solve the problem of oppression and a lack of comfort for the oppressed? How do we solve the problem of death for everyone? Friends, uh, the answer isn't found in human government. 
as good as it can be. The answer isn't found in medical relief agencies or uh, rehabilitation programs. The answer is found in a person, the Son of God, the Lord, Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, the very Son of God. It's him. He says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What the problem of death? Listen to John eleven twenty five. 25. I am, you know, the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. But the great irony in all this, right, is not that these things happen to us, wickedness and, and uh, oppression and death, but rather that you and I are oppressors often to others, that we commit wickedness and injustice, that we even hate or are angry, as Jesus told us, that we kill others. We are ministers of death at times as well. The great irony in all this is as much as we, we, we scoff at this, how, this is all pointless, oh my goodness, I can't believe it, we realize that we are the ones also inflicting this sin. We recognize that what we've done is actually struck out against God, that we are wicked. And we have a major problem before a holy and perfect and just God. More than just physical oppression and physical death, our real issue is that we have sinned against God. But the beauty of the gospel is that this major problem has been solved by the coming of Jesus Christ. He has supplied us with all that we need. His righteousness, his life, his comfort. This can only be found when we trust him and him alone, repenting of our sin and trusting him as our king. He says, come, drink or eat of me the living bread, drink of me the living water. It's him and him alone, not our good deeds that merit us our salvation. We recognize that. We only get the things that he's talking about by trusting him. Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Only through faith in Christ can we receive true healing and the salvation that you and I so desperately need and the world needs. King Jesus has come to provide for the helpless, to be our righteousness, and to bring life where death reigned. This is our God. This is real. This is actually happening. He has done this work. Jesus of Nazareth came to do this. My question then is, will you trust him today? Believers and non-believers, Here, here's the message. Here's the good news. You can know God. You can know salvation from your sin. You can know the one who made you. You can be free from your sin against this God by trusting in the work of Jesus Christ alone. Don't, don't push this off. This is a continual call that we'll make every week. And we should be making it to our neighbors and our loved ones and our families consistently, proclaiming the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the true place of right living. And this is exactly where Kohelet takes us. Today, our text ended in a pretty dark place, right? I mean, not very encouraging, I admit. We literally stopped saying that it's better to just not even be conceived or just dead compared to how bad and dark it is in a world that has evil. But can I just remind you for a minute that this is not without a context. I didn't realize this until this week, but this really is kind of part two of what we talked about last week. 3, 1 through 15 leads us right into this section. 
In Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 15, we learn that God is the sovereign creator, right? That he's the one who's over all things. He's the one that's making and doing something. And we can't do or make anything that's new. Uh, we, all has been done already by God, the creator. And last week, we learned that our rightful place before this God is a place of grateful and joyful submission. It's a place where we realize we are creature and he is creator. All of this, all this life is set by the unchangeable design and goal of our God. So ultimately, all these observations lead us to Kohelet's main point. If you remember this, he said, God does all this so that people will fear before him. He's talking about worship. So Christians, in the midst of a world of wickedness and oppression and death, our hope is in the God who will judge. But it is in the God who has provided salvation in his very son. What a picture of his love. This is our God. It is only with this understanding that he is our righteousness, our comfort, and our life that we can say, go rejoice in all that you do. Or as Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Let's pray together. Oh God, please give us grace through your word. Please hear our cry. Please give us grace and may your spirit call our, our, our children and those who are toying with Christianity and those of us who have not taken you seriously. May we bow gratefully to you, our creator. Lord, the world around us is wicked. Lord, we recognize even the wickedness in our own hearts and we want to turn from it. We want to put to death the deeds of the body, and rather, Lord, pursue you. We ask for help. We ask for your grace that we would pursue holiness, that we would have the righteousness of Christ, and that you would grow us up into maturity in you. Make us those who make disciples that proclaim Jesus Christ. And I pray for those that do not know you. Oh, Lord, would you call them to yourself? Do a work of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the grace you have given in your word, and I pray that you would teach us to rejoice in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're not a part of a gospel-centered church in your city, we encourage you to find and belong to one. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.